HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Fair Kitchens. Learn about the Fair Kitchens code and join the movement at fairkitchens.com. This week on Meet and 3, I'm about to go on maternity leave. This is Katie Mosman-Wadler, and before I leave you in the incredibly capable hands of Team HRN, we're rounding out Season 5 with a deep dive into the food rules, weird cravings, and overall hype about eating while pregnant. There are a lot of safe foods to eat, and we shouldn't be sort of assuming that just because something is raw that it's dangerous. I just found myself feeling like there was an alien piloting my body and brain and uh, totally changed the way that I ate. So was it the eggplant? Sure. Why not? I just don't know. Tune in to this week's episode of Meet and 3 anywhere you listen to podcasts. I'll be back soon with our newest and tiniest producer in tow. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm Souther Teague. I'm here at uh, my remote studio, 3A, in beautiful Greenpoint, uh, Brooklyn, and I'm hanging out with my dear friend, uh, Bailey Pryor of Real McCoy Rooms. Welcome. Hi, how are you, Souther? I'm happy, man. Um, and I'm real psyched to see you, especially given the topic that we're going to try and cover today. Um, tomorrow, as it turns out, is 16th of January, is the 100-year anniversary, the centennial, of the enactment of Prohibition. That's correct, yes. Which, you know, just last month we celebrated the uh, repeal day on December 5th, right? But this is the 100th anniversary of the enactment of the of the, of the the law that said our, our, our government has decided and our people have gone along with the silly notion that we're not going to drink in this country. That's exactly right. And like when we're in the political climate that we have today, it's like seems so shocking. We can't agree on anything. And somehow we all agreed that we just weren't going to drink. Actually, we didn't agree. Yeah, that's what I want to get into. Yeah, yeah. Less, less so, than about 20% of the population actually voted in that election. Less than twenty. Less than twenty percent of the populace of America. Yes, that's. Well, there was there were some reasons for that, right? A lot yeah. of people weren't allowed to vote, vote then. Still. Yeah, it was access. It was information. People didn't even know it was voting time. You know, there there are a lot of reasons behind it for sure. But the 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 real thing about it was it was the first time in American history when there was a political action committee, and they were called the Anti Saloon League. 
Um, so there were these, sort of these three different forces that came together to get prohibition to go through. And, and it took decades for this to build and build and build to this point. But essentially, the, the, it was a very, very sophisticated organization. And so they were relig religiously motivated, but they were also basically the 1% in America. So sort of wealthy white men who owned everything. And they essentially banded together to try to control this kind of unruly populace, and especially in some cases, the a lot of immigration that was coming over from Europe after the war, you know, after the, the First World War. So Europe's in shambles. People are coming to the United States to basically seek the American dream. And when they get here, they brought with them their drinking cultures. So you had the Germans bringing their beer, and you had the Irish bringing their whiskey, and you had the Italians bringing their wine. And that's all perfectly fine. There's no, nothing wrong with that. But of course, in any society, there are some people who go big on these things, and, and the vast majority do not. But it was the first time in America with this very puritanical kind of approach to things where you saw a lot of people being sort of drunk in the streets. And the main reason for that was because alcohol was very inexpensive in America at the time. We had a, a growing uh, bourbon industry, whiskey industry, down in, in Kentucky and Tennessee. And, you know, essentially those farmers who had, had moved to that area were farming and creating all these great crops, but they couldn't get them to market before the crops would rot. So they started to distill more and more and more, and it caused a great glut. And we did a lot of research for the documentary film that I produced uh, for PBS about this. So I spent five years making this film and we did a considerable amount of research. And at the time you could consider that essentially a gallon of whiskey at that time period was the equivalent of a dollar or even two dollars at the most in today's dollars. That's how much excess alcohol was being produced. So you had people not paying the rent, they were just drinking. You had people who didn't have jobs, they could still get their hands on the stuff. And so it was a little bit crazy. Right. Life was hard. Yes. And drinking was cheap. And there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of immigration issues. People were saying a lot of the same things that you were seeing today with, you know, they're coming over here to take our jobs. It was kind of the build the wall thing was happening at the same time then. Uh, they, they, in New York City especially, they would say things like, they put up signs that said NINA, N-I-N-A, which, which stood for No Irish Need Apply. Right. So there was, you know, there were groups of people that were very resentful of folks coming into the country. And so some of those people felt dejected. Some of those people had different reasons for doing what they did. And then and it turned into something that wasn't so great. And it wasn't just isolated to that time period. You had, you know, basically a, about 15 year period where this glut of alcohol was going on. And you also had in that same time period, three main groups that were sort of banding together to assert their essentially religious, sometimes racially motivated, sometimes economically motivated um, control effort against certain groups. And so the three main groups actually were the Anti-Saloon League, uh, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, and believe it or not, the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, at that time period, the, the, around the turn of the, of the end of the 20th century, uh, the Ku Klux Klan had a registered membership that was over five million people in the United States. There are these amazing photographs that we found at the Library of Congress that show literally thousands of people in the white, you know, cloak outfits that the, the KKK wears walking down Pennsylvania Avenue in this big parade with very proudly banner, you know, big banners that said, this is the Klan from Rhode Island, and this is the Klan from Massachusetts, and this is the Klan from New York, and California, and Illinois. And so they were rallying to get political control um, and political positioning in America. So they wanted to get people into Congress and all that kind of stuff for their agenda. 
Similarly, the women were looking for the right to vote. So you had the Temperance Union, which um, was a very powerful, very meaningful organization. And they were really just trying to protect families. You know, they had, a, I think, a very forthright and positive effect on society, but they were sort of becoming the the moral, um, you know, uh, barometer for America. And so they were worried about domestic violence. They were worried about women not being respected and getting the right to vote. Um, they were worried about um, persecution of women, um, a lot like what's going on today in the Me Too movement, for example, you know. Sure. I think it's also, like, interesting to note that at that time women maybe couldn't hold land or they couldn't get jobs, so they were totally reliant on men in their lives to be the moneymakers. And if the men were too easily swayed by the temptation of drinking, maybe this was just a way to sort of protect the wallet as well. Yeah, I think it was, uh, to, to a certain degree, there was, um, that was more in like the 19th century, in the middle of the 19th century. By the time you get into the 20th century, you know, women could certainly do what they wanted. They, there just weren't a lot of them going out and doing it. And the really, the interesting characters who really took that bull by the horns were the flappers in the 1920s. And so that was a, a substantial era of growth in American, in America for women. Um, because this was the first time that, that really in large groups, um, young women were going out and getting their own jobs, finding their own apartments. It was the first time where you see culturally a lot of women um, not being beholden to a father or a brother or an uncle or a husband. And so that kind of, in, in certain ways, horrified their suffragette mothers, um, but it represented a, a, a real positive movement in, in American society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Now, the documentary that you're talking about is the, what's the title again? It's called The Real McCoy. The Real McCoy, based, which you, you did all this great research, and you found, uh, you just sort of rediscovered a rum. Well, you, talk about that. Yeah, sure, sure. So I, I was making the film, and it was kind of mm-hmm. funny because the, the you know, I, I make a lot of films for PBS, and I was pitching them on the idea, and they didn't, they didn't want to make it because they, they were sort of not really excited about doing a subject on alcohol. It's much more of a film about prohibition in America and, and history um, and about the rum runners and there's one rum runner in particular named Bill McCoy who was the first rum runner during the prohibition era and so he was the first guy to fill up a boat full of rum in January of 1920 down in the Caribbean and he uh, sailed it up to New York City and acted as a floating liquor store three miles offshore which was not illegal because three miles out was international water mm-hmm. so he could hang out within sight of the Statue of Liberty um, with impunity and there was nothing the Coast Guard could do to stop him because he was being completely legal so on the very first night that he got to New York, he actually flagged down a, 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 a fishing boat and told them, he wrote this in his memoirs, by the way, um, he flagged down this fishing boat and told them, uh, hey, I've got a boat full of rum. Now this is the very day, this is January 16th, exactly 100 years from ago from tomorrow, um, that this occurred where he showed up in, in New York. And now you're talking about prohibition just beginning that day. So you'd think that people would have stocked up alcohol, but that night when that fishing boat got into the into shore, that night 50 boats came out, according to McCoy, all looking to buy rum. Mm-hmm. And you'd think, well, you've known since last November right. <laughs> that, you were, that we were not going to have alcohol in the United States anymore. You could possess it. You couldn't sell it or buy it or you know trade it. You could produce it only for medical purposes. So you see a lot of old brands that say bottled in bond or medicinal on the label and things like that. You could go to the doctor and get a, 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 subscri- a, a prescription for it the way you can with marijuana today. Um, so it was, it's just kind of one of those funny circumstances that uh, uh, that occurred. And so 50 boats showed up and that later turned into a, a collection of boats on a regular basis every time McCoy showed up, which was about once a month from the Caribbean. He'd come back 
with a boat full of rum and pretty soon it was like Carnegie and Vanderbilt and all these people would come out in their boats and they'd have these big parties and they'd bring bands and, and the Coast Guard would just sail up and down the three mile line and they couldn't go out right. beyond it. Just hoping they'd drift across by yeah. accident. Right? <laughs> well, actually, in their drunken stupor and not paying attention. <laughs> right. But then when at the end of the night, you know, everybody would have, would have bought everything that McCoy had. And so then it turned into a scene like on the Serengeti Plain in Africa where you have a hundred wildebeests and one lion. And everybody would rush back to New York at the same time, and whoever was the slowest got caught by the Coast Guard, you know. And so one person would get snagged, and everybody else would make it in, and that's just the way it went. And you're talking about a bunch of very slow boats. These were all, you know, fishing boats, and none of these guys were race boats. In fact, this is where the race boat came from, was out of this, people going, I need to make a faster boat. So the rum runners started building faster boats and putting larger engines and all that kind of stuff. So it was a pretty funny time period. Yeah, I mean, that's, I feel like that's how NASCAR came around as well. It is. It's exactly how NASCAR, on the, on the beach in Daytona, was running the alcohol up the beach and cr- trying to get away from the cops. You mentioned just briefly in there that, you know, there's, a, there's a, at least a comparison to be made between uh, prescription whiskey, uh, or booze in general, uh, in America during that time, and the current, you know, marijuana not being legal everywhere, but more and more but for being legalized. Purposes, yeah, yeah, for, yeah. For, for medicinal purposes, you could pick it up. Yeah. Like, I feel like it's... You know, everything that you've said so far, it just seems that, uh, you know, a hundred years later, and we're still kind of in the same... It's exactly <laughs> right. It's, su- it's surprising. We're in you the know. same spot on the map. I mean, clearly we've made lots of headway in many areas in, in our society, and, and lots of maturation, and there's a, 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 you know, but at the same time, you look at marijuana the same way they were looking at alcohol at that time. You were looking at women's rights. You know, it feels like things have gone so well. There's so, been so much advancement in the last hundred years, but on the same level, there still has not been. It's mm-hmm. really strange. Um, so, uh, same thing with politics. You know, when you get into an environment where you have large groups essentially attempting to create religiously motivated legislation that doesn't really fit the agenda of the, of the majority of the people, but it does fit their specific um, region or collection of people in one way or another. So, and then you have the class issue, the 1% wanting this while the 99% doesn't get that. So all of these things seem to be surprisingly similar actually a hundred years later. It, it kind of blows my mind and the whole time that I was making the film uh, this resonated with me, and so it, it, it sort of it engaged me to do greater research into this to see if these theories were actually somewhat correct. And uh, you know, I found that the issues, especially related with the tax laws and things like that, were really, really unique. Um, there was no income tax in the United States. It was it was technically uh, a law, but they had not enforced it or forced people to start to to pay income tax. So when they signed the prohibition legislation. Remember, they went so far with that legislation. It wasn't just a new law. It was actually an amendment to the Constitution of the United States. This is major. Like, this is a huge change. So they, they, they stampeded past, you know, the, the, the Anti-Saloon League went past the, just the normal process of, hey, we're going to make this illegal. They, they did for a decade before get it to be illegal in certain states. And when they finally got to 31 states, they knew they could get enough of a vote in Congress to, to amend the Constitution. And they were hoping that that would make it permanent and there would never be alcohol in America again. And so when, you know, only about 15, some, some, some registrations on this say 15% of the populace voted and some say 25% of the populace voted of America at the time. Still woefully low. Yeah, incredibly low. And, and at the same time, the people who did go 
only went because they were primarily motivated for various reasons, whether it was religious or it was women's rights or it was racism in, in the case of the Ku Klux Klan. So these people would go to the, the polls and they would actually vote. And so you see this happening now in, in certain uh, regions of the country. There's voting based on a certain specific agenda. And so now our political process, we're all quite used to this. You know, there's a, you know, people go to vote because of a certain tax thing or because of, you know, abortion rights or, or anti-abortion or whatever it is. There's a single agenda. But in this case, um, this was, you know, really changing the lifestyle of you know, literally 85% of the country was now going to have to not do what they have a right to do and a choice that they have. And, it, and for almost, you know, the vast majority, there was no problems or issues or social woes. Certainly there were people who will any, dealing with any substance will have abuse issues and medical issues and, you know, maybe they get violent or whatever. And so there's always that portion of the population, but it's a very, very small percentage. And so now you had forced sobriety, um, you know, starting exactly 100 years ago tomorrow uh, forced on everybody in America, and it lasted for 13 years. And it's the thing that most people don't recognize in the U.S., that actually prohibition lasted 13 full years. And finally, they had to repeal this amendment. It's the only amendment to the Constitution that has ever been repealed. Right. So the only thing that's ever gone in and then been pulled out. Uh, well, that's a great spot to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. We're going to come right back and keep talking with Bailey Pryor from Real McCoy Rooms about the centennial of the enactment of prohibition. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Fair Kitchens. The food service industry faces a challenge. More people are eating out, yet restaurants are losing talent. Why is this? Research by Fair Kitchens reveals a serious well-being issue within professional kitchens. 74% of chefs are sleep deprived to the point of exhaustion. 63% of chefs feel depressed. And more than half feel pushed to the breaking point. This can't be ignored. Fair Kitchens is a movement based on the belief that a positive kitchen culture makes for a healthier business. By taking the pledge to be a Fair Kitchen, they'll provide you with free information, tools, and resources to help you take action towards making your restaurant more stable, productive, and happy, which positively affects the guest experience. It's time to act now. Learn about the Fair Kitchens code and join the movement at fairkitchens.com. And we're back. You're listening to the Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. I'm hanging out with my good friend Bailey Pryor from Real McCoy Rum, and we're discussing tomorrow's 100-year anniversary, the centennial of Prohibition, um, and how, oddly, there's a lot of similarities to, to that time period and, and the people to what's going on today, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It was a, I think it was an interesting time because it, it tells you a lot about society and, and you know, in so many ways that we've grown, um, it also shows in so many ways that we have not grown. Mm -hmm. And I find it fascinating that a hundred years can go by and we can't get past certain stigmas. You know, um, you see so much in the media today about the about you know men abusing women and the Me Too movement and mm -hmm. and the, the unbelievable circumstance that that still exists to that magnitude and 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 the abuse of power behind all of that. And and so there, I'm sure that was a substantial largely unspoken issue back in in you know a hundred years ago because there was you know probably 
quite intense stigmas against people. I'm sure there were quite intense stigmas placed on people who, who were affected by that, which is entirely unfair. Mm -hmm. And so today, you have very courageous people coming forward and saying, you know, this person should not be elected or should not be lauded as some kind of artistic hero or any of these things because they did this terrible thing. And I think that, that uh, you know, the fact that we're still discussing this, the fact that these things are still going on, the fact that it's, um, you know, so prevalent, it just seems like how many people have, have been sort of caught at this, it, it, to me, is a really shocking in, uh, circumstance. I mean, yeah, of course, it, it, you know, it, cockroaches, right? You see one, you've got more than one. Yeah. Right? So even the ones we've brought out into the light, that means there's plenty more that are still in darkness. And, uh, it is courageous, and, and, and I'm, I'm glad it's happening. You know, I, I think it's going to change the conversation that we're having, and it, 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 it you know, creates a place that's more diverse and more inclusive on, on all levels. So um, I don't think it's the worst thing to have happen. I wish it didn't have to happen, but if it, if it has to happen, I'd let it. let's just get to it. You know, let's roll up our sleeves. Well, yeah, and I like the, the, the step that followed it, you know, the independence that so many people were able to seek. And, you know, so now you have a time period where uh, young women, you know, known as flappers because they refused to cover their ankles. And so they often wore <laughs> flip-flops, you know, or, or shoes that had no heel uh, or no attachment, no wrapping of the ankle. So they would flap when they walked. Mm -hmm. And so that's why they called them the flappers. But here was an opportunity to go out into the world and lead their own life. And it's amazing that it, that that only happened in this country a hundred years ago. Like, right. why not two hundred, three hundred years ago? It was only a hundred years ago, and and it led to an incredible um, uh, melting pot in American society that I, I don't hear a lot of people talking about, but I think was was very real, and that was the speakeasy. So young women could go to the speakeasy on their own. They weren't beholden to their husband or their brother or their uncle or whatever. So they could go out with their friends and they could they could enter the speakeasy and they could order their own cocktails and do their own thing. But at the same time, the exact right. same... The, the, the bar itself was already illicit. And at the time, right just prior to that, as a woman, you wouldn't go to a bar alone. Definitely But since not. you've already got this thing that's illegal, you may as well yeah, take all comers, right? Well, I think also because they felt strength and, and power. Sure. And, and also power in numbers. You see, every time I see pictures of these things, there are young people banding together, both men and women, but also groups of women going into the speakeasies and, and, and analyzing the photography of that time period, it tells you a lot about kind of what the attitude was. And people were very playful in these pictures, very loose and relaxed. And it was, it just seems to be like it was a very free, very fun time for people who were not used to that before. Which even that to me sounds a little shocking that, that you'd have a, a playful, relaxed demeanor when you're being photographed doing something <laughs> totally illegal. Well, I think it was a little, you know, a, a little, uh, uh, you know, Scofflaw. Yes, the thumb in the eye to whoever was oppressing them before. Of course, and, yeah. And, and in a funny way, that melting pot was such an interesting place because, you know, here's also the first time that you see people of different ethnic groups coming to the same location because, mm -hmm. you know, if you, were, you hear about the five boroughs in New York, right, there was a time period when you didn't leave your borough if right. you were, if you were lived in one and then there were these other groups and... So the Scandinavians used to be in one area, you know, and you had the Irish in another area, and you had the Jewish people in another area, and they were, it was a, it was a, a more contentious time, and I'm talking about the early and middle 19th century. But now you're going into these speakeasies, and there were a lot of them in New York, um, where people would come into these places, and there'd be women unescorted, there would be people of different ethnic groups, there would be um, people of different races coming into these places, and everybody just made it happen and it, it you don't hear a lot about people not getting along or there being issues in fact what you hear about 
are, are wonderful evidence of great artistic advancement. So you have cocktails growing and people doing really interesting things because they only had certain materials they could work with. Mm -hmm. But also you have the advent of jazz music. Here's right. where a group of people who had never played before would bring their instruments, they'd sit down, and I'd just start playing my guitar and you'd just break out your mandolin and we'd just riff. And that's where all of that began, was sitting in a speakeasy somewhere in New York or Chicago or Miami or Los Angeles. And to me, that's a fascinating development socially. And so you're watching live this great artistic form creating an inherently American artistic form, but comprised of all these new people coming to America. I just think it's amazing. Yeah, I think it's a very um, powerfully unique perspective that you're putting on it. Even as I sit here and listen to you talk, it's, 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 uh, I'm seeing it all materialize. Like what this great experiment, the noble experiment that we tried out to not drink for 13 years, all the issues and problems that I, that I think that it caused, it certainly caused a lot of unique and positive things to happen as well, right? Sure, absolutely. There were tons of positive things that came of it. And I think that those freedoms that it created for people, the opportunity to actually have, have discussions and conversations with people that you were normally sort of isolated from socially for various reasons, um, give, gave us a great opportunity to really become a better place. I think in many ways uh, to have America, you know, have a maturation process through uh, circumstances like this. And it's because everybody had sort of a common enemy, right? We all wanted to drink. So we went to this place together and then you could kind of be more tolerant with each other and hey, we've got something in common. And so it allowed people, of course, you know, alcohol frees up your inhibitions a little bit. Sure. So it probably makes it work out. And I'm sure there were places that were highly, uh, you know, uh, aloof or whatever, but you know, you see like the 21 Club and places like that. They're still in existence today, actually. Mm -hmm. It was a speakeasy. And everybody walking the motion picture footage that I found at the Library of Congress um, of, of that. You see everybody in tuxedos going into that place during Prohibition. But um, I think you had a, a mix of classes, races, sexes. Sort of everybody got to, to hang out together in some of these places. What did this do to the price tag? You mentioned that just prior to Prohibition, you could get a gallon of grain alcohol for a, a two dollars uh, yeah today today's money. dollars yeah, yeah. Two, two of today's dollars which is yeah. just ridiculous right what, what happened to the prices do you know yeah uh yeah actually so what happened was of course production went way down immediately because you had a ton of distilleries that that fell apart i know um like nelson's greenbrier which was one of the first distilleries down and i think it's distillery number five in america they mm -hmm. went out um a whole bunch of places uh couldn't do it anymore some of the more politically connected or, or more successful organizations were able to figure out how to navigate by uh, becoming um, you know, medicinal suppliers and industrial suppliers. Um, people were starting to use it for fuel, which they never did before. Um, now today you go to the gas pump and you pick up the gas pump and you fill up your gas tank and right there on the meter it says contains 10% ethanol. Yeah. That's, in, in North America, that's moonshine. That's corn whiskey. Right. Uh, it's just you, stretching the fuel. It's just stretching the fuel. If you went down to the Caribbean or to, well, not to the Caribbean, but if you went to Central America or South America, the, the, the fuel alcohol they're making is, is rum because it's, you know, it's from cane. That's their natural resource. We had corn. So um, in, in Europe, it would have been, you know, probably grain. So whiskey. Um, so really interesting to me that, uh, that those things occurred. And so as you move into an environment where, where more people are, are, are sort of creating the, the, an economic push into something and there's more people seeking it, yet the resources are diminishing, of course the price goes up. Mm -hmm. um, many of the institutions in the United States that were producing product at that time started to export it out so it could come back in through the rum runners. 
And so they would keep a certain inventory, and there's great pictures that I found. Um, these were primarily, uh, there's so, several of the universities have some of these pictures that we went to. I, I think I got um, photographs and motion picture footage from about 30 different institutions around uh, the United States and the UK and the Caribbean, the, 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 um, from Great Britain, but also from the um, National Archives of the Bahamas, which subsequently burned to the ground, the building, and I took all the pictures that I got from them that I had duplicated and sent them back to them so they could oh, to put it back on the air to restock their stuff. Um, but they, uh, uh, in, in a lot of these images, you see um, gigantic volumes of alcohol produced at certain locations, you know, literally tens of thousands of cases or barrels all stacked up. And so this was just being hoarded because they couldn't sell it. So eventually you see trucks sort of going into shipments for overseas. And what they did was they brought those shipments that were supposed to go to Europe. And instead the boat turned around and went down to Nassau in the Bahamas mm -hmm. and started dropping it off down there. So if you go to the National Archive of the Bahamas, some of the pictures show literally hundreds of thousands of cases stacked up on Prince, uh, Prince Edward Wharf. Um, and so the, the rum runners would pick up there, and it was only 50 miles from Miami, so sure. it was the closest location. It was, it was great on the trade routes with the, with the uh, Gulf Stream, so the boats could sail through. So it was a perfect location, and that's where Bill McCoy picked up you know, his rum, and he would get all that material. And, and in the early days, it was mostly rum coming up from the rum runners, because that's why they called them rum runners, but because that's what was in the Caribbean right. at the time. You know, People weren't hoarding bourbon and scotch whiskey down there, wine, it took a while for that to that mechanism to get set up. So the first year or two was was a lot of rum coming back up into the U.S. Um, so you know, and that rum was coming from Jamaica and Cuba and Barbados and places like that. I'm, I know that McCoy carried Barbados rum because there's some pictures that we got, we found that had custom stamps on the barrels themselves. You can see them in the pictures right. behind him, and up on the dock behind him in some of these photographs. And it, there's a custom stamp that says Barbados rum. So we knew that's where the rum was coming from. Um, but the, the, uh, the process was to then fill up your boat down in the Caribbean. You'd sail it up to New York City. That would take you know, a week to provision and fill the boat and a week to sail up. And then you'd get right off of uh, Sandy Hook, New Jersey, and mm -hmm. there was a giant red light ship out there acting as a lighthouse. It was floating at anchor. It was called the Ambrose Lightship. That ship today is tied up at the South Street Seaport. It's this giant red ship with big white letters down the side that says Ambrose. That was the light ship that was the three-mile limit mm -hmm. off the United States. So everybody just had to stay outside of the Ambrose light ship. And McCoy wrote in his memoirs in 1930 um, that the captain of that ship rode over in a boat one night trying to get McCoy to sell him some alcohol. And he wouldn't, McCoy wouldn't sell him. And he said, you know, I don't, think the, I don't think the U.S. government would be very happy with me if I sold you alcohol. Right. <laughs> You're the cops, you know. <laughs> right. I get it from one of the guys I just sold it to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't pin this on me. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you talked a little bit off air about how there's lots of like propaganda during this time as well um, sure. to sort of like, I guess, maintain the vilification of drinking and it's, you know, perceived ills. Yes. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I mean, you know, can you, you can describe some of that artwork for us. Sure. You can imagine, um, you know, anytime there's a political movement and there's something behind, uh, you know, there's a process behind it that has a, uh, an agenda that people need to have visuals and all that kind of stuff. So there's some amazingly, um, I don't know, bizarre and and uh, unacceptable stuff that you would see to, by today's standards would be completely unacceptable. There's one in particular where there was a dragon that I remember vomiting um, European immigrants out of his mouth. 
as though they were somehow like the spawn of this dragon or something. So they were trying to make, these were the people who were like sort of today's version of build the wall, mm -hmm. um, who were saying, well, we don't want these immigrants coming in here and taking our jobs and all this kind of stuff. Well, you know, they were coming here and they were looking for work, but they were also bringing industry and technology and, and culture and tradition and all these things. And so, um, you know, they couldn't see the positive side of having more people in the U.S., uh, which, which seems bizarre. But um, there was also quite a bit of, of um, focus on, on child labor. And I think rightfully so, to a certain magnitude, there, were, there was actual child labor. Um, I mean, had child labor laws been enacted at that no, point? No, they weren't. Yeah, so. They weren't. But they, they, it's what led to, ultimately, to child labor sure. laws. I think the, the publicity behind this um, was uh, led to that, which is a positive result of it. But, you know, at the time there were set up photographs and there were things where, you know, you see little children in gigantic factories, you know, with tools that were, they were even too small to pick up, but they would put them in the room and take the picture in order to do this. And I'm not trying to belittle that in any way. There were definitely abuses of children. Um, but there was also um, propaganda, so you have both sides of that coin, and the, and it's it's terribly unfortunate that kids had to go through that, and and so they they were using that and saying, well, dad's drunk, so the kids have to work to put food on the table and things like that. Whether that was true or not, um, I'm not going to defend that in any way, shape, or form. But I do think that um, as with everything, I'm sure sure it was true to some percentage, but that certainly. percentage was small, and you 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 know as the as the maker of the propaganda, you have to seize that and exploit it in some way. And, yeah, well, I think, you know, when you're trying to, to leverage your agenda off something else, exactly. um, yeah, that you do those things. So, so that's what was going on at the time period. So there's a, there's a very iconic artwork related to this, um, which I, I think is largely unacceptable artwork today because it's so racist or sexist or whatever. So you don't see people, uh, you know, reviewing it or celebrating it today, but it did exist and it was quite prevalent. Um, and so it was also just a really bizarre thing to go through the process of finding this stuff and looking at it and understanding and interpreting where it could be meaningful in the documentary film about this era, just to kind of explain what, what it really felt like to be there at the time, what was really going on, what were people seeing in the paper and things like that. Um, so it was, a, it was an important part, I think, of that discussion. So right, because information wasn't nearly as available as it is today. No, so you'd see posters along the, you know, along the side of side sideboards of the saloons or bars or well, saloons are gone, I guess. Barns, I meant to say, uh, and other public houses like the 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 post office, etc. Sure, right? that's where you got your information. Sure, and religious leaflets. There were lots of people walking the church, streets, yeah, handing out leaflets and things like that. Um, those were where you primarily find a lot of this stuff was related to, you know, a religious organization of one type or another that was trying to put a stop to some of these things, and, and, and rightfully so. So they would hand this stuff out. So you'd see all this material that way. And, and you know, this is a time period when people, you know, still believe that anything the president said was true and correct and, and right and honest, you know, and that there is anything that we can't feel that way today. <laughs> yeah. And anything that was in the media was accurate and, and correct and honest, you know, and so there was this... Um, I don't know, uh, an assumption that because it was here, it must be true. And, and I think it was also in the same way that there was a great maturation in American society and in a lot of great ways associated with women's rights and, and, um, and, and race relations and things like that in the melting pot of the speakeasies. You, you also had an, a, uh, um, an awakening to the foibles of our system and, and the fact that a lot of these things were not true and were being manipulated by people. So there was sort of an innocence lost era, to, a component to this era as well. Sure. What do you reckon, and I don't know if you have any information on this, this is a curiosity that's coming to me literally at this moment, like 
this had a, a tremendous impact on you know the the financial lives of lots of folks who lost their businesses because you could no longer make distill distribute so that means the truck drivers are out the, the bars are out the, the distillers are out what sort of impact did it have on other countries when we just, when we said to say Ireland yeah we're not taking any more whiskey we don't drink anymore well of course um, it had a major impact on especially the Euro European industry who were already suffering terribly from the destruction of World War one mm -hmm. you know where entire cities were destroyed and things like that the the just to put this in perspective, the the at the time period when you know in 1920 when they signed the prohibition in uh, bill and it was it was um, the Volstead Act. So Andrew Volstead was a, a Republican congressman who who was behind this, and and so he got this thing to be completed, and so he signed the act. And when that occurred, um, with the same stroke of a pen, they started a war on rum, but cut the United States budget in half because 50% of the money coming into the United States was from the taxation of alcohol coming from Europe. 50. 50, five zero. So we didn't have income tax. So it was the prohibition law that led to the requirement and the enforcement of the income tax because now we had to have money to fight this war and of course to run the country, but they didn't even consider that aspect of it at all. So the people who adamantly went for this, you know, this 15% of the population, um, and all the people in Congress who voted for this didn't recognize that they were actually cutting their own budget in half. So how do you recover from that? I mean, yeah. can you imagine if they just said, I mean, we would all celebrate, you know, if they said everybody's taxes are cut in half, but then you would find in a short period of time what that really means. And now you wouldn't have the police officers, you wouldn't have the hospitals, you wouldn't have the army, you wouldn't have the ambulances, you wouldn't have the, all these things. So there's a ebb and flood to these things. And so when you just slam the door on one, the effect is devastating in many ways. So it affected the Europeans, certainly, who were producing these products, and, set, and, it, and it affected all the people who worked in the industry. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the folks that were in, um, in the bartending community, and especially the more prevalent locations, the big hotels in America and things like that, you, you hear about a lot of bartenders going to Europe. They went to London, they went to Paris, and they started, you know, at this, they, there was one place called the American Bar at the Savoy. It's still there. In London, and so the bartenders would go, and they would. They went to Rome. They went to all sorts of places, and and that's where they could continue their craft. They learned a lot from it, and there was a great development and international collaboration, and materials and things that you couldn't get in the United States, um, different products and things like that. So again, it was this resulted in the maturation of the cocktail community, um, and their ability to invent new things, and then they eventually came back to the United States and brought all that with them. So you have these pluses and minuses from every one of these effects, um, and I, I just find it fascinating the level of detail. Yeah, and I, I love I love the way your sort of mind works and the way that you're going into it all and and taking a look at it. You know, you could have easily just said, oh, "I'm going to talk about this one guy, uh, you know, McCoy, who's who's running rum." But you see, you see basically what we're talking about now, which is the ripple effects of any one thing changing so many things around it. And frankly, it's, it's eye-opening to me to hear how many positives came out of this, what I overwhelmingly consider or have considered until this conversation, a really terrible thing. Like, prohibition is terrible. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the, the great lesson here is that intolerance doesn't work, you know, across the board. Can you, can you give me one example of absolute intolerance working 100%? It just, it never does. You right. know? So when you, when you completely disregard the needs, the interests of one group, so that it's an advancement for your group, you know, and without any consideration whatsoever, that will eventually fall apart. You know, prohibition doesn't work in anything. You know, 
try to get your teenager to do something. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, you know, the, the the phrase that we use today, I think, stems from pro, when we had prohibit, prohibit something, make it delicious. Yeah, exactly make, right. And make it desirable. Exactly right. Prohibit something and make it desirable. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Um, pro, uh, I've heard people say prohibition is the is the best sauce. Right, like that's gonna make everything delicious. Sure, it made cigars, Cuban rum, and and rap music delicious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tell you, tell someone you can't have it, and then it's all they want. Right. Um, man, this is just a fascinating topic, and I feel like we could chat about it forever. But let's talk a little bit about rum while you're here. Sure, absolutely. Uh, you brought me a bottle to Studio Three A. It's sitting right over there on the table. Real McCoy, fourteen year. Yeah, that's yeah. unheard of. It it is actually. It's funny. No, I mean, like that's literally unheard of. Fourteen it, years. Fourteen years is the oldest rum ever produced at Foursquare Distillery in four <laughs> generations, and we've all become so um, sort of desensitized to aged Caribbean rums because people use terminology. Um, some producers use terminology and, and put large numbers on the label. So you think it's that old. So you'll see something that says, you know, Solera 25. And you'll think, oh, that's 25 years old. Or you'll see like slow age 28 or something like that. And you'll think, oh, it's 28 years old. Neither of those are age statements. They're called marketing terms. The United States government refers to those as, quote, fanciful language. Has nothing to do with the actual contents of the barrel. Sure, sure. Unicorn tears. Exactly. You can say that. There's exactly. none really in here. Exactly right. So um, when you actually age a rum in the Caribbean, um, or basically anywhere along the equator, you lose substantial amounts because you have consistent nonstop heat. If you... When you say lose, you mean evaporation? Evaporates right through the wooden barrel. It's Angel share. Angel yeah, yeah, share, of course. yeah. So if, you, if your product, whatever you're making, is in a barrel and it's in constant heat, it will constantly evaporate, right? But if you go like to Scotland, for example, where they make these lovely single malt whiskeys and other things, um, they have cold winters and hot, you know, a, a shorter period of time of heat in the summertime, and they'll get some evaporation through that and less during the winter. So where in Scotland you might lose 1% or 2% to evaporation of your spirit, down in Barbados, you'd lose, you know, we're at Foursquare Distillery, where our rum is made, um, you'll lose between 6 and 8%. So by the time we get to our regular 12-year rum that we make all the time, after 12 years, we've lost, you know, 60% of the contents of the barrel to evaporation. It's gone, 6-0. Whereas in Scotland, in the same 12 years, you'd lose about, you know, 12 to 20%. Right. So to make a, a rum that's 14 years old, in, in Barbados, is mm -hmm. to say to yourself, I'm willing to sacrifice 70%? 70, 80, depending Up to 80%. On, yeah, yeah. So this is like, it's like dry aging meat. You know, I was a butcher. I talk about butchery sometimes. It's like dry aging meat, right? We can age that piece of meat for, uh, you know, maybe 45, 55 days. Sure. But that means that we're going to cut away so much of it to get back to the stuff that's edible. Yep. That we're going to lose that, that amount. And now, suddenly that springs the price very exactly, far, very right. far advanced. So, yeah, how do you justify in your mind saying I'm going to make a rum, I'm going to park it for 14 years, I know I'm going to lose 80% of it. Yeah. How do you like? I know you got partners and people you got to answer to. What are they saying to this? <laughs> oh, and yeah, economic pressures. People think rum is rum. They don't understand that you know right. there's there's these different categories in rum. Well, and plus what you even just mentioned about the fanciful language, like if someone if your bottle's sitting right next to a bottle that says 28, they're going to be like, this was twice as old and it's half the price. Yeah, exactly. Mine's more expensive, but it's it's half the age. Well, because that's not an age statement. Right. You know, that might be two year or not aged at all. It might just be neutral spirit. We're a pot still. 
you know, so if you're coming out of a multi-column still, for example, multi-column stills make neutral spirit. Mm -hmm. Their job is to extract alcohol as quickly as possible, but eliminating all flavor in the process. Yeah, yeah. I, I try to remind people all the time that a still is a purifying machine. Yeah, it's just an extraction to, You don't necessarily want it to be completely purified. Right, right. You want to hang on to some of those flavors so that they show up later. Exactly. It just extracts the alcohol. And the multi-column still, the big still, which came in in the 1930s and 40s, um, that really just rips out all the alcohol, and the, I mean all the flavor. And the reason it does, and the way it does, is that inside a multi-column still, if you've ever seen one, it's the same device they use to refine petroleum, by the way. It's exactly the same machine. Yeah, yeah so again, because they want it nice and pure. Yeah, they want to be able to burn it, yeah. So the so when you get to five, uh, five towers or five um, uh, columns, you should imagine that as all of those columns stacked up on top of each other. It's one big column, but they, it would just fall over in the wind or, you know, it'd be too prohibitive to have it stand up like that. So they broke it into five different units. That's why it's like that. So in those towers, in those columns, there are plates and in the plates are water and the alcohol vapor comes up in the bottom of the first, you know, the bottom of this big tower and goes through the first plate. And when it does, it's like a tea bag. It, it robs the alcohol vapor of some of the flavor. Then it goes through the next plate and the next plate. And when there's a hundred plates in there, by the time the alcohol vapor gets to the very top of this five column tower, you now have a neutral spirit. It has robbed every aspect of the flavor profile. You cannot tell what the original product was, whether this was a molasses wine or an agave wine or a grain wine, corn. You can't tell where this came from by the time it's gone through a multi-column still. Right. And then, then it's, it's up to the maker to add flavor back in by, by putting it in the barrel, by... Yeah, adding yeah. things that they're, that they're that, that are allowed to be added to different products from different places. Exactly. But you you eschew most of that. So we don't do that. Yeah. So so at Foursquare, Richard Seal, who's our master distiller, has a two-column coffee still. And it's got about forty plates in it. So it takes out quite a bit in one of the two stills that he has. It takes out quite a bit of the flavor, but still leaves some. So you get a very light flavor profile. But you can absolutely still smell that it's a rum. You can absolutely still taste that it's a rum. But it has less than half the plates of another you know of the big multi-column still. Also, he's got a, a double retort pot still, which is basically the old Caribbean style pot still that, that came out of, uh, for a lot of different reasons. It would take me most of the show to explain, but basically that is very inefficient device. The pot still is inefficient at extracting alcohol. So it leaves all of the flavor from the wine, the, the original wine, the molasses wine, uh, in the spirit. So it's called persistence. The, the, the flavor components called congeners will actually persist through the distillation process mm -hmm. in a pot still because it doesn't have all these plates and things. So you have this super flavorful. And if anybody's ever tasted a Jamaican pot still rum, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's monster flavors. And for some people, it's too much flavor. Oh, go. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, Hampton Estate, beautiful yeah, love product. Um, you know, Appleton products are beautiful. And Worthy Park products those are, those are, are Those are walk before you run. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you, you, you know, build up to that. and people learn how to how to get to those, and mm -hmm. they're and they're absolutely gorgeous traditional products. And so in Barbados, they they did a combination of the two stills, and so when you blend the heavy flavor profile and the light flavor profile, you get this nice balanced product. And so people always, you know, revere the Barbadian rums because of this process. It's, it's mixology on the macro level. Yeah, sure, or, you know, large scale. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's like plenty of. Well, there's obvious skill. There's definitely craft, and, and there may be some art, like in blending. You know. Uh, oh, absolutely. Like that's generations that's, of trial and error. That's to where it figure comes that from. out. Yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so Richard Seal at Foursquare is, you know, fourth generation there, and his is the last of the family-owned distilleries that's owned by a rum expert on the island. There's Saint Nicholas Abbey, which is another small operation, but they've been learning from Richard. 
So Richard's family are the last ones. It's a family-owned operation on the island, and and so all the rest are owned by big companies. But you know, to the credit of like Mount Gay, for example, um, you know they make an amazing product. They make it in a traditional style. The big company that came in and bought them did not like destroy it and did not, you know, try to homogenize it for you know for profit. They they just kept going with with the correct way to for a big company to buy a small a small company, and and they do a fabulous job. Yeah. You had to learn a lot of this kind of on the run, right? Because you you were just a filmmaker prior. I was, yeah, literally yeah. prior. Uh, <laughs> and then you made this particular film, and it spurred in you some I don't know crazy wild idea. It that was you a crazy to resurrect idea. this thing. Yeah, yeah. And and it was fun because you know when I saw the po- the photographs from McCoy that had Barbados rum custom stamps in the picture, I knew that rum was coming from Barbados. So. My wife Jennifer and I decided to fly down to Barbados and we met with the head of the National Archive and asked her which distillery would this have been, you know, back in 1920. And she said, well, the population back then was only 30,000 people. There were certainly some traders. There were five, six, eight different traders in the, on the island at the time. She felt that the biggest one or the one that was the likely uh, supplier was Foursquare, which was uh, the, the distillery didn't exist at that point. They were traders and they were buying from other distilleries and they were blending and selling. And so the, they were called R.L. Seal, which is Richard's great-grandfather, mm-hmm. Reginald Leon Seal. And so um, so she thought it was them. I thought it was actually Mount Gay. And I called, uh, just out of the blue, called up the owners of Mount Gay, this gentleman named Frank Ward, who was also multi-generational owner at the time. And I asked him if he would meet with me. And I, and I showed him the pictures and told him the whole story. And, and I said, you know, so would this have been Mount Gay? Because I know Mount Gay is so big with the sailing community along the east coast of the United States. It's a big brand. You know, was this you guys? And he said, definitely was not us. He said, we weren't exporting till 1957. Mm. And I said, Frank, but your bottle says 1705. And he goes, don't worry about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. look away, look away. <laughs> no, no, not fanciful that's language. In, no, that's that's true. They're not they're not BSing anybody. That's that's Just in relation to a building yeah. that was on their property that was a, a, a still building in 19 in 1705. Sure. So um, so we had a good laugh at that, and and he said, no, you should go talk to Richard Seal because um, he said I think it might be them, and that's who the the uh, the, the woman from the uh, National Archive said the same thing. So I went and met with Richard and told him the whole story and showed him all the pictures and said, was this you? And he said, I have no idea and I, I don't think so. Maybe it was. We don't know. Um, so we have no smoking gun evidence that it came from there. But I asked him, you know, well, what was your what was your family doing in 1920? What kind of rum was that? And can you make that for me? And he doesn't usually work with outside people like this, you know. And he said, well, actually, I'm really interested in this because um, you're one of the few people that came to me and said, I just want to make a traditional Barbados rum. And that would right. be a very rare rum because most rum in the United States, for example, is neutral spirit from a multi-column still that's just been had sugar added to it, you know, and various flavor components and things like that. And people try to, you know, sell that as premium or innovation or all these things that they, all this terminology that they use. But, you know, when I came to him and said, I just want what your family was making back in 1920, what's that? And that's about as close as you would get to what was on Bill McCoy's boat, regardless of who sold it to Bill McCoy. That's what was on Barbados. That's what was in that barrel. That's what would have been, you know, sold by McCoy off of the, you know, Sandy Hook, New Jersey. So, um, so Richard agreed, and we moved forward. And that was in like 2009. And then we've been working together ever since, and it's been fantastic. And I've spent eight years 
learning from Richard now, like formally asking him thousands of questions and walking around the distillery with him repeatedly and, and you know, basically trying to apprentice with him. Yeah, and he's one of the most revered minds in the rum world, right? He really is, yeah. Like rum and, ninja is how I keep hearing him referred to as the rum ninja. Yeah, people call him the Pappy Van Winkle of rum yeah. and all these things. Yeah, well, because he's a real harbinger for authenticity and honesty and, and transparency and sustainability. I mean, So when you came to him, you hit him right on target. Like yeah. All those things were what you were asking for, and he was like, I'm in. Yeah, he said that's exactly what we do. Because I'm assuming if you're the Pappy Van Winkle of rum, people are coming to you all the time and asking you stuff. Yeah, they were. They were, and now so even more. You know, he was, he was, um, his his real fame blossomed in the last five years or so, and, and people are really starting to recognize him for what he is and his contributions, you know, and he's an amazing guy, really. Uh, it's it's very interesting to watch him evolve. I mean, he's a mathematician. Like, mm. That's what he went to school for, and, and but he grew up in a beverage alcohol family. He grew up in a distillery family, so... You know, here he is for in four generations, his family's been making rum, so he focuses exclusively on this, and I just think he's absolutely brilliant at it. Amazing. Well, that's good that you guys found each other through whatever means. Um, I got one more maybe question you, you may or may not have an answer to, but it occurred to me as we were talking. So dis- distillation as a craft and a, a, and a um, you know, an art form really have come a long way in a, in a relatively short amount of time, but we have to imagine that if we took 13 years off, did we fall behind, or did that help us? When we came back into the game, we just leapt ahead by 13 years. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting question. Like, if we had to bust up all the stills that we had in operation for probably a long time. Sure. And then had no stills at all, you know, more well, or less. When we came back, we got to kind of time travel. We got to look at what was innovative and sort of start there. Boom, we get to start here. Sure, it's an interesting perspective because all of those producers... We're now used to, very used to, um, you know, there being no alcohol production for consumer purposes in the United States. Um, and so they would found, they would have found out on November 7th of um, 1932, um, and, and then they would have, two weeks later, you know, three weeks later, or well, a month later, on December 5th was repeal day. Yeah. So they've had less than a month. To go from zero to hero. full production hero. Yeah. And by the way, that was probably the largest party in American history would have been December 5th, 1933, yeah. repeal day. Because this is where all these stockpiles of alcohol for medicinal purposes had been stockpiled. And now for 30 days, they were able to be shipped all over the country. I have footage from the Library of Congress, motion picture footage, that shows, or no, National Archives and Records Administration is where I found this. Um, it shows a cop standing on the side of the, right next to a, a giant truck filled with alcohol with a, with a watch in his hand. And he's going, three, two, yeah. one, and it's midnight, go! You know, and so midnight on the 5th, you're, or the 4th. Trucks are rolling. The trucks roll out of there, and it's just like they were loaded with beer or something, I think. They had kegs Whatever, or something. get it to the people. And yeah, so then now in New York, Los Angeles, you know, Chicago, Dallas, all these places, they're having these massive parties. Uh, because alcohol was legal, so starting at midnight was the uh, on the fifth of of uh, December um, was the biggest party in American history, I believe. Yeah. Well, and then starting tomorrow, a hundred years ago, was yeah. when the party ended. Was right. The biggest, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Maybe that another big party. The funeral pile. <laughs> yeah, for yeah, that, yeah. Yes. Like a pyre. Let, let the bells peel. Yes. Um, Bailey, it's been really fascinating sitting here and talking to you again. Thanks for coming back on the show. Sure, my pleasure. Um, if anyone wanted to reach out to you or get in touch with you or, or any of your products, you got a website you want to pimp? or? A... Yeah, sure. Well, the Real McCoy Rum can be found at realmccoyrum.com. Okay. 
and we're on, of course, at the Real McCoy Rum um, in social. So, reach out to us. You can find emails. You can you can instant message us, whatever. But uh, we love to engage with everybody. It's been such a blast to do this and have the perspective of being able to research like this, um, and then ultimately create a brand. I mean, this was just this crazy idea. I'm sitting in my office, like, hey, I should start a rum company. I don't know nothing about this. Yeah. And and but as a documentary filmmaker, I do all my research. I write my scripts. So I'm an absolute research hound. So the minute I started to investigate this I became completely fascinated with it and and I did you know apprenticeships in all sorts of different places in, throughout the Caribbean um, and I, I finished one at Ballandalic Distillery in Scotland which is has been making a new place has been making whiskey for 10 years they haven't sold a single bottle yet because they're aging it it's wow. amazing um, so it's been a really fabulous experience to to learn so much about you know fermentation distillation maturation, blending, and just completely geek out on it, and now be able to talk to people about it intelligently. With a um, bottle in hand. With a bottle in hand, and, and, and being just extremely lucky to have found Richard at the right time, and he's such a great business partner. We, we've done, a, I think, a, a really interesting thing of bringing something to, you know, back to, the, to people who didn't get a chance to access something like this before. So It's outstanding. Thank you. Um, I want to make mention of, uh, we're definitely going to have you back on, great. because there's plenty to talk about, but we're going to make mention just real briefly here. You're, you're part of, or you're putting together, the Guardians of Rum? Yeah, yeah, we have a group, and it's a collection. It sounds of... like a rock and roll band. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, so what we've done is, you know, there's there's big alcohol in, in America and in the European Union, and, and they have, they're very powerful, and they have big lobbies and all this kind of stuff, and, and that's great, and we're, we're not opposed to that. But we do have a collection of very, very small traditional producers in um, a lot of different places around the world, you know, in Mauritius and St. Lucia and Jamaica, Barbados, Martinique, Guadeloupe, um, you know, in, in Central America and South America and places like that. And so people who don't have a voice with the U.S. government or with the European Union um, need to collect together to create a, an, an entity that can help to reinforce their rules and regulations. People always say a very incorrect statement about rum. It's the most incorrect statement you can say about rum, which is, there are no rules in rum. Yeah, that, that's a moral. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but in, in rum, there are rules in every single nation. They're just not enforced by the U.S. government or the European Union. So right. in the United States, for example, we can't make champagne here. We have to call it sparkling wine because yeah. the U.S. government enforces the rules of the champagne region of France. They, they, they enforce the rules of cognac, which we have to call brandy. They enforce the rules of Jalisco, which is tequila. You can't make American tequila. Have you ever heard of that? No, the government would never allow it to happen. But we have like people in Canada making Jamaican rum and selling it in the United States as 100% Jamaican rum when it's never even been on the island. And all those people and their identity have so been not, So it's not on. a matter of codifying. It's a matter of enforcing. Enforcing, yeah. So the rules are and, there. And respecting it. So, so the Jamaicans have rules. Um, the Barbadians have rules. The St. Lucians have rules. Everybody's got their set of rules. They just aren't recognized by the European Union and the, and the U.S. because they're tiny little countries, very poor countries in some cases, and nobody's bothered to lobby for their support. So we're collecting together as a group, and we call ourselves, it started out jokingly, as the Guardians of Rum. Um, and now we're 20-something, 22, 23 uh, collective distilleries. You're only, the only people who are members of this group are, are the actual producers. And then we have supporters and we allow people to, you know, we want people to come in and join as supporters. Um, so we have a website, which is guardiansofrum.org. And you can't search for it because we're so small, you can't find it. If you just do write that in Google, you have to actually type it in www.guardiansofrum.org. And there you'll see all of those traditional producers. And this includes Mount Gay. 
um, Appleton, all these great groups. And so these are traditional producers who don't sell you neutral spirit with ink and sugar added to it and things like that. These are the people who are not faking you out with fake age statements like Solera or Slow Age or any of that kind of stuff. This is where you'll find real rums, traditional rums, made the same way for a very long period of time. And in many cases, you'll look at this list of producers and say, I've never tried that. I should try it. Right. And there's incredible variety. It's an, it's an absolute um, amazing experience to get the opportunity to taste all these different rums. And they're all done naturally and in a beautiful way. Amazing, man. I think what, uh, what makes you sound credible is that you don't just champion your brand you champion no the category yeah we're, and that's, we're, that's amazing yeah we're trying to you know it's not about i've never did this to make money this was fun at first <laughs> it was it was intellectually stimulating second and now i feel a sense of purpose you know like hey we, we could do something to actually help a lot of people you know, because I have an, you know, as a filmmaker, I have an overdeveloped sense of social justice, right? Mm -hmm. It pisses me off when people rip off, you know, populations or steal the tragedy of the commons. I've, I can't tell you how many films I've made about that subject, which is basically one interest group stealing a, a natural resource for their own, you know, financial gain and, and to hell with whoever gets affected negatively by that. So right. that's, that goes on and on and on. So in the case of rum, you see this with people coming in and saying, hey, this is a Barbadian rum when it's not. So all these people who spent 400 years of history of making rum in Barbados. They're getting their their brand of Barbados ripped off by somebody who wants to just, you know, fake everyone out and say, oh, yeah, this is from Barbados when it's really not. Yeah, I get it. Well, I think Guardians is the right title. And I really, again, appreciate you being on the show. We'll have you back again with some of the Guardians soon. I think uh, Josh Perez is putting that together for us. Absolutely, he is, uh, yeah. And Thank we'll, you. Uh, and we'll, we'll get more of that information out there so people get the, the right info. Uh, thanks again for being on the show, man. Cheers. Thanks for having me, Souther. Take so care. you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The devil runs his rhythm and blues that sound. It's gonna get you sun in the air. The Speakeasy is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows that you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.